Hey everyone, it's Mariah and Danny. Welcome to our podcast, Behind Behavior, where we take a look at the science behind behavior and how we actually use it in real life. Short disclaimer, nothing we say on this podcast in any way reflects the opinions of our employers or the BACB. All opinions are our own. Also, there may or may not be some explicit language in this episode. One of us tends to swear, and the other one usually doesn't. Join us to find out. Welcome back to another episode. Oh my god, we said welcome at the same time. Jinx! I love it. Well, we are on episode 23, if you can believe it. I can't. 23, and today we're talking about behavior plans. (laughs) Um, Mostly the bad ones, I think. I mean, behavior plans are not that fun. Honestly, like, I feel like that's what people think we do the most, People who know what we do think that we writing behavior plans is, like, the biggest part of our job, but it's not. And I don't know any behavior analyst that, like, enjoys writing behavior plans. I guess if you are pretty familiar with your, your client, they're not that cumbersome to write. hmm But BIPs, which is behavior intervention plan, mm-hmm. is more a pain in the butt because I feel like there's so many errors in like interpretation yeah of the plan it's not Mm -hmm. actually writing the plan or implementing it as the BCBA that's the issue it's more like what people do with your behavior plan after it's you know published out into the world (laughs) That is very true. And it is, I mean, and your behavior plans do follow you. I feel like we've talked about this on the show before, but our field is not that big inside of like local communities. So people are going to see your name attached to things. So you want to make sure you're putting out a product you can be proud of. And just to get like a couple acronyms out of the way. So BIP is behavior intervention plan. You might hear me saying BSP, behavior support plan. I think those are the two like most common acronyms that people use, but it's the same thing. <laughs> um, those are really good acronyms to know since we'll be using them throughout. Um, if you're also new, we're going to talk about RBTs, which are registered behavior technicians, BTs, which are behavior therapists, or DSPs, which are direct support persons that's probably going to come from Danny's end definitely so Danny how about you start us off with some tips or hot takes that we should be on the lookout for in a behavior plan so some common flaws that I see in behavior plans um first of all in the behavior plans that I typically write have specific behaviors targeted for decrease so these are like your physical aggression property destruction things that we can't let continue to happen for safety reasons right the intervention as in like the thing that you expect your staff to do 
doesn't match the function of why the behavior occurs. That's a flaw that I see pretty often. I think a lot of times it kind of stems from maybe behavior analysts who are like overworked. They have too big of a caseload. I don't know. But you see a lot of copy and paste for every single behavior or across multiple clients. But we as behavior analysts know if the intervention doesn't match the function, then you're not addressing the real issue. You're not addressing the why of why the behavior is happening in the first place. We need to make sure that our interventions are like easy enough that our staff can do it based on whatever their training level is, but it should still be function-based. Do you see that, Mariah, in your like in your clinic days? Um, I didn't really see that, but I was probably most familiar with my own behavior plans. Only because I would leave like an existing behavior plan in place long enough for me to have rapport with a client. Mm -hmm. Because you can't get a client and then just suddenly be like, you're mine now, I'm changing everything. Right. You got to get to know the person. (laughs) Right. Which means I also have to do the old behavior analyst BIP and Mm -hmm. see if that even works for me in the setting Mm -hmm. and like environment that we're in at the time. So uh, sometimes their stuff doesn't need updated. Obviously, you're going to update it anyways to mm-hmm. match the current therapist with them. But the more eyes you have on something, too, like the more ironed out it gets. So yeah, don't really mind. I didn't really see that as much of a problem that I could see it being in a community setting. And I think, um, yeah, in a community setting, it's different, too, because your resources are different. But the one I see a lot is like the interventions assume an attention-based function. So it might be something like, you know, ignoring the behavior or leaving the room or, you know, something like that. Whereas, but if the function is anything but attention, then your intervention isn't doing anything. I mean, shoot, if it's like self-stimulization, then you're just giving the person more room to do that behavior if you leave the area, you know? Um, and, and there's a lot of reasons why a behavior analyst might do that, but I think that's important too, why why we should keep up with our FBA. Um, you know, FBA is like a, f- a fluid document, right? Like it's not something we do once, especially in the community um, when we might be working with a client for years and years. It's not something we do once and then assume is correct five years down the road. We got to continuously update that so we know that we're targeting the appropriate function. An FBA for everyone who's listening is a functional behavior assessment. And that is just a tool that behavior analysts use to find the function of each specific behavior. So for each behavior, there would be an FBA done. Yes. Good catch. Actually, that's a great transition because my next gripe that I see is um, a lot of jargon in a behavior plan. This like technical speak that we do, especially um, if you're, if the plan is going to be implemented by people who do not have any sort of like behavior training outside of what you provide to them. So I'm, I assume RBTs would know a little bit more jargon than maybe like frontline staff in a group home, but I don't know that for sure. And either way, you shouldn't be putting a lot of jargon in there anyway. 
I wouldn't even know that for sure because I've had RBTs who not every RBT is trained the same, but to be an RBT, you only have to do 40 hours of training. So Mm -hmm. after that, it's kind of like, what behavior analyst are you under? And are they teaching you more terms outside of your like initial 40 hours? Yeah. Um, I've had conversations with some of my closest RBTs and I'll stop when I'm getting like a glazed over look and I'm like, do you know what I'm saying? No. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's how I realized your RBTs are maybe only taking in like 50% of what you're saying. Right. Which is fine, but your RBT also has to be comfortable enough with you to say I'm only taking in 50% of what you're saying. So you yes. need to like reel it back. Um, and I mean, RBTs, yeah, it can be a career, but I'm going to be really shook if you're going home and you're like reading some behavior manual at home for leisure. Like that's just not it. And right. Why would you? And I you're don't. probably <laughs> underpaid. Yes. You're probably underpaid. So I would not be spending my leisure time like doing that anyways. If you, Mm -hmm. if you don't know the jargon, you haven't been exposed to it and you also haven't raised that question to your supervisor, then one, you should raise the question to your supervisor if they use it all Mm -hmm. the time. Two, if you've never been exposed, then you're just a product of your environment. And I can't get at you for that. So (laughs) exactly. It's not in your learning history. The other thing to think about too, um, at least in the community setting in clinic or in school, it might be different, but it is not uncommon for the guardian to read a BSP. And we're also required to have input from the individual based on whatever is appropriate for their cognitive and understanding level. So it would actually just be really rude. If I wrote Mm -hmm. a document in jargon and then expected a parent who had no behavior training to read it, that like, that doesn't make you look smart. It just makes you look rude. Mm -hmm. Like, so just explain it in layman's terms. I think that's one of the biggest changes um, that I noticed exiting grad school. Because when you're in school, everything has to be jargon, you know, or if you're prepping for a conference, everything has to be jargon. But then as soon as you get out into the real world, you really need to kind of drop all of that and leave it back, leave it back at the conference, leave it back in school. Because a lot of your stakeholders are not going to know what that jargon means. Or when you're studying for the exam. I mean, there is a time Mm -hmm. and a place for, for our jargon. Mm -hmm. Um, But differentiating the time and place because yeah. your product of a behavior plan is pointless if nobody knows how to interpret it exactly then it's just not going to be used mm-hmm. and then it's not helpful to anybody <laughs> the last big flaw that i see in bsps mo- mostly in the community setting is a lack of alternative appropriate behaviors So again, typically behavior plans in the community setting are meant to address, you know, dangerous or unsafe behaviors. And a lot of times people go to extinction. I think that that's something that is slowly shifting in our field, but that's kind of been the standard for a long time. So if we're thinking about extinction, 
you can't extinguish one behavior without another behavior popping up in its place because the function still needs to be met. And so when I work with a lot of my stakeholders, they go straight to extinction without, they don't know it's called extinction, right? They just immediately goes to, there needs to be a consequence. There needs to be a punishment. Sure. But then we also need to need to teach an appropriate alternative. You know, for example, if the, if the function is attention and, you know, they're doing, the person is doing something unsafe to get that attention, we need to teach them ways to appropriately ask for that attention and then make sure that they're actually getting it. Otherwise, they're just going to keep with that unsafe behavior. I agree. Yeah. I mean, it's also more ethical to provide an alternative appropriate behavior. You shouldn't Mm -hmm. just be taking someone's behavior and trying to like eliminate it from their repertoire because they're trying to communicate something. Right. So maybe you're annoyed at one behavior. That doesn't mean Johnny still shouldn't be getting water. Yeah. Like you, you should teach them how to appropriately ask for water in that case, instead of just like saying, I don't know, his like code word or something that's like a super annoying or like spitting. Yeah. Spitting's annoying. And that's how he asked for water. You need to Mm -hmm. like provide a signal or Mm -hmm. like a hand gesture, literally anything Johnny could do to appropriately Mm -hmm. ask is what it should be replaced with. And I think we have to keep the repertoire in mind, right? Because if right now Johnny's way of getting water is banging on the table and you just put banging on the table on extinction, he no longer gets water for that. That is his repertoire. It is very unlikely that he's going to jump on his own to asking for water somehow. Mm -hmm. More than likely, he's going to try a different branch related to that same repertoire. It might be banging on the table harder. It might be banging on the table more. It might be kicking the table, flipping the table. It's probably going to be something related to the behavior that used to work for him. So we have to come in and teach that new behavior. I think that's another thing that I see a lot is like behavior analysts kind of assume that their staff know how to do that, teach those coping skills, teach those functional communication skills. So they'll just put those words in the behavior plan without a protocol for how to teach Johnny Mm -hmm. that functional communication of asking for water. Right, and if your behavior plan is over a skill that is so common, like if you're asking mm-hmm. for water, I could imagine that opportunity coming up like 10 minimum times a day. Oh, sure. All the like, time. There's a ton of opportunities for that, that you could shape a behavior change super frequently or like mm-hmm. quickly mm-hmm. Um, without it really like impeding on his life. Yeah. I mean, he needs to have water anyways, but maybe you're doing, like, uh, non-contingent offering water before Mm -hmm. he gets to that point where, like, he's demanding water in, like, in a physically aggressive way. Definitely. And I guess, like, my main point is our behavior plans shouldn't just be about decreasing the unsafe behaviors. They should also be about increasing the alternative behaviors, the independent living skills, the social Mm -hmm. skills, all the behaviors that will eventually make this person not need a behavior plan anymore. That should be just as much, if not more than the behavior plan, than the like 
targeted for decrease section. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. I wish more of us looked at behavior plans in that way mm-hmm. because I feel like it would really bring a lot more buy-in for staff. Yeah. Like, and parents. I work a lot with parents now. So it's like, hey, instead of us trying to focus on so-and-so not doing this, why don't we focus it on you guys like having an independent child who you know can live alone one day Mm -hmm. without you needing to prompt them to like wash their laundry twice a week or something like right time to do your sheets again like these should be natural cues in the environment that we're building in now Mm -hmm. and yeah I mean I feel like I do look at it that way Mm -hmm. but you have to also explain that to to everybody else using the behavior plan (laughs) yeah because I feel like so many people view a behavior plan as like a bad thing um and at least in the Scylla community world where I work there's certain reasons a person is required to have one by the state and people get really bummed about it um but even the people who aren't required to have one when it's like a voluntary thing or when it's up to like us as the behavior analysts to like determine that they need one it's always pitching it to the team we do have to frame it in a more positive light like you know look this is the purpose of this is to teach staff how to teach them these skills or to teach staff how to better interact in these moments of you know high anxiety or escalated behavior because people do they kind of immediately think it's a negative thing and I don't think it's meant to be or it doesn't have to be Mm-hmm. If you do it correctly. I this is a little bit of a sidebar, mm-hmm. but similarly related. Um, I recently had a discussion about students' IEP meetings. Yeah. And all these other people who would attend an IEP meeting, like a guardian, a teacher, mm-hmm. um, you know, the principal, special ed coordinators whatever Mm -hmm. they were all talking about the behavior yeah behaviors occurring that are taking place in the IEP and how everybody has just automatically put a negative connotation on behavior in Mm -hmm. general like Mm -hmm. anytime you say behavior it's a bad behaviors it's already bad yeah but I came in as the only behavior analyst to the topic and I, I was presenting them a challenge like instead of going in and discussing these quote bad behaviors, how about mm-hmm. you challenge everybody else that behavior is really a neutral term? Mm-hmm. Should be. You shouldn't be like automatically giving behavior a negative like connotation Mm-hmm. Just because some student is doing like your non-preferred behavior to get like said consequence that they're seeking. Right. But really it's like that's in the mind of tons of people and we really mm-hmm. need to work around like stop automatically assuming all these mm-hmm. behaviors are bad. And they right. were like, well, I don't even like using the word behavior anymore. Well, what are you going to use? Because at this point, you're just like switching another term to be like bad mouth, essentially. 
Yeah, I mean, unless you're going to describe it, but I, right. I feel like another term that's gotten that is attention-seeking. Mm-hmm. Everybody views attention-seeking as bad, whereas it's like, well, but we all seek attention at one point right. or another. And it's not always for to be, like, bad or annoying. Not always a bad thing. I no. do think um, in terms of, like, attention-seeking or, like, calling everyone a narcissist lately. Oh, my I gosh. think, like, the uprise of TikTok, especially in other social media platforms, have really, like, perpetuated all of these more psychological terms and jargon to be, like, yes. all negative. Yes. Which it's, like... Girlfriend, I can guarantee every single ex you've had is not, in fact, a narcissist. That would be a very (laughs) strange dating pool. (laughs) Right. Like, what are you on, like, narcissist Tinder or something? Because, like, (laughs) that's... But it's, like, everybody's just so used to these terms becoming more colloquial. Yeah. That suddenly they are all assigning their own value to them. Mm-hmm. which just kind of goes back to like the children cursing yeah episode we did if you're assigning that value to that word then that's a you problem right essentially so like you're not doing the student a favor in your iep meeting if you're also saying all of these behaviors mm-hmm. are bad like what do you think the behavior is gonna morph into another behavior right. Right. And here's the other thing with that. When I go in like to a home and my staff tell me so-and-so Johnny had another behavior that doesn't give me any information. Even like as a behavior analyst, I'm like, everything's behavior, blah, blah, blah. But even if I didn't have that mindset, okay, cool. Their behavior plan targets verbal aggression, physical aggression, property destruction, which like what happened? I don't know. Mm -hmm. That doesn't give me any information about what happened, the antecedent, nothing. So it's right. also just not helpful. When they're like, hey, Johnny's behaving, I'd be like, cool. I'm Good. so glad he is alive. I'm, <laughs> I'm glad he's not dead. <laughs> Praise be. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's just like, I. it should be a neutral term. It is a neutral term. But also, it's just not helpful to use it's it. It's a neutral term to us, though. Yeah. Because we work with behavior and we see yeah. all the like sides of it. I feel like everyone else who's outside of like the behavior field is like, ooh, you're behaving or misbehaving or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, hopefully I keep behaving for many years yet. Yeah. <laughs> That's the goal. If not, check the obituaries. <laughs> right. RIP. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that was a little bit of a tangent, but. I totally agree. It was necessary. And I feel like it was still on theme for the the topic we're talking about. It is. Because I feel like all of this, like your mindset when you're thinking about your clients and their behaviors and your interventions, all of that plays into how you write your behavior plan. Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, what flaws do you notice, Mariah? I also have a quick three. I'm going to share two of them. However, are sort of like, it's like a twofer. Okay. You shouldn't have one and also not have the other. Okay. So first would be proactive strategies Mm. or just things to look out for. Yes. Um, Whenever I write a behavior plan, I write 
maybe not in a behavior plan unless this is like a one-off but most clients typically have some kind of like tracking system or like a binder that kind of like follows them through Mm -hmm. so all of their stuff's in one area staff go to one area to like fill the stuff out for that client right in there I always have like a get to know you or like how to build good rapport Mm -hmm. type sheet and this can I guess you can include it as part of the BIP um but like how do you actually build rapport Mm -hmm. with this client what do they like what are like non-preferred things um a good thing would be like what are what topics do they get stuck on that you mm-hmm. should avoid what topics like automatically stir up some kind of like emotion maybe you shouldn't talk about what are some things you need to know but don't necessarily like need to discuss yes all of that kind of stuff mhm so with that knowledge pre-existing mm-hmm. um you should also have signs of like your client kind of amping up like becoming a little maybe they're becoming a little unregulated maybe Mm -hmm. they're getting a little overstimulated maybe their anxiety is picking up these can all be different signs obviously these are going to be individual to the client sure but oftentimes a lot of stuff would be like maybe you see an uptick in fidgeting Mm -hmm. maybe you're starting to see um a common stim that they do when they're like uncomfortable or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had tons of clients who just start pacing. Pacing is a big one. Heavy breathing. Heavy breathing, which is really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I will not get on that tangent today. <laughs> Save that for another day. Heavy but, oh breathing gosh, yes. is such a good one. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of those just tick up the anxiety and before you know it like if you're not on it and catching Mm -hmm. that right away Mm -hmm. chances are you're just going full throttle from there so those are things proactively to be looking for that you can kind of like nip it in the bud before it gets too out of hand yeah because it's so much easier to intervene when you're just at that precursor i'm feeling a little antsy stage than when somebody's in a full-blown meltdown Mm -hmm. yeah because i mean you're so much closer to your baseline behavior Mm -hmm. absolutely and i don't want to be amped up 100 percent agree i mean kind of like we were talking about before like if your behavior plan only focuses on the targeted behaviors to decrease you're missing so much stuff like, really, the goal of your plan should be how do we just not even get there by being right. proactive? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I wish it was a full stop right there. However, I know many people are not self-aware enough to be aware of their surroundings to catch yeah. some of these very, like, obvious precursor behaviors. Right. It's like, what are you doing other than, like, observing your client, like, chilling with them? Well, and sometimes you can't. So, I mean, I know like in the community setting, sometimes there's only one staff. And if they're in the kitchen washing dishes. That's true. You know, it just depends on your setting. So sometimes you do miss those precursors. Especially if you're in like a clinic setting too. Mm -hmm. Think about this kid had a rough morning trying to get 
into the car, transitioning to school, has to drive. They're going through traffic. Mom gets mm-hmm. wound up, has a little bit of road rage. Mm-hmm. Before you come in, like, your bottle's blown. Yeah, you've been primed to be You're in a bad mood. Literally marriage. coming in, like, <laughs> throwing elbows, like, yeah. trying to karate chop people, barreling down hallways. Like, okay, yeah. we can- precursors are out the window. Yeah, and that's all stuff that you guys would not have known until he was walking in. Right. In a bad mood. But that's okay because my second point is that you should also have reactive strategies. I feel like these are, these should be standard. Yeah. But I feel like a lot of people don't do them. And specifically when you say reactive strategies, you mean de-escalation. Right. Like verbal de-escalation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. You should be everything before you go hands-on with a client. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, first off, I mean, you need to be able to assess the environment and make sure that it's safe enough to not have to go hands-on. Yeah. If your kid's, like, found a machete or something, like, obviously, we're doing anything we can for everybody to not get hurt in that Having situation. a machete is different than, like, <laughs> holding a pen. Yes. <laughs> Listen, it was just Halloween, so I'm having, like, machete <laughs> yard cleaning vibes over here. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, but also, I feel like the likelihood of maybe your client having a machete unauthorized is slim, so. Hopefully but you never know. Well. You That's never fine. know. I mean, we could have some police officers listening to this, applying it to their calls, maybe. So, I mean, I don't know. Let me not say anything about that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Anyway, yes, verbal de-escalation training is so important because I think it's really easy in those moments. The client is escalated. It's really easy for the staff to get escalated. And then it just turns into a whole power struggle, like a whole control issue. When really it's like, okay, well, you're both too dysregulated to calm each other down at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I always like to include, these are basically areas, if you're working with this person, you should probably just have memorized. Yeah. Because the chances of you trying to de-escalate a person and having like a brief moment of time to even look at the PIP to glance and see what it's referencing, like you're Mm. not going to have time for that. So you need to be aware of this. Mm. Um, But usually I like to add safe topics you can switch to talking about. Mm -hmm. This might be something preferred, but something that they're not going to continue to like ruminate and perseverate on throughout the entire course of the day. Mm -hmm. So if your kid's like overly enthralled with Pokemon, we're not going to talk about Pokemon. We're going to talk about maybe something more neutral. Right. So you can just get get back to baseline. Mm -hmm. Maybe they like a bird ID. We'll mm-hmm. talk about birds, but we're not going to talk about your favorite thing. <laughs> right, right. Something just a little bit more chill mm-hmm. until um, we calm back down. Or you could have a list of, and I say a list more in terms of like you're kind of pulling something out of like your therapist's tool belt, you know, mm-hmm. of activities that assist with co-regulation. Right. Because at this point maybe your client doesn't really have the skill of Mm self-regulation 
Mm-hmm. And I've been, I feel like I've been a broken record lately. But in case you didn't know, you can't self-regulate until you can co-regulate. And I will scream that from the rooftops until I'm done behaving. Yeah. Um, Regulation is a skill. And you we do not just like learn skills out of thin air. Right. Somebody has to have taught you how to regulate. And I mean, most of the times I'd like to think that's our parents, but the way society is i'm just gonna say it parents aren't doing it Mm -mm. parents aren't doing it (laughs) but maybe they just don't know that they have to be able to display co-regulation skills for their kid to be able to self-regulate but Mm -hmm. is it really parents fault if their parents didn't teach them that it's It's a cycle you guys it's definitely a cycle and i think it's something that people have only recently started talking about because a lot of this internal stuff, you just assume that other people are also doing it. Mm-hmm. But that's just because something is internal doesn't mean it doesn't also have to be taught. You don't just inherently know right, how to do it, how to regulate, how to do all that. And even whenever you say co-regulation, that, that's coping skills. Mm-hmm. And that is something that I know I, I see a lot is just like coping skills, just like those two words listed in a behavior plan. But then no examples of what those are, what that looks like for that person. Because, you know, every person's going to have a different set. Right. <sighs> Shake my head. That's probably a really annoying one that we didn't add as like an official one we were going to cover. But we can circle back around to that one because I really like that you mentioned that. Yeah, for sure. Um, on de-escalation, I also have who is this client's probably more preferred person mm-hmm. if you need to call because stuff is really hitting the fan and you like yeah. really need help. Yeah. Um, for me, oftentimes this could be like a teacher, mm-hmm. like a preferred client's teacher, preferred parent. I mean... If you're the RBT and you're managing this alone, maybe this is like another BCBA that maybe the client had before your previous BCBA. Maybe your BCBA is actually available to come help. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe they like other staff that's around and you guys have to like swap kids really quick something. Or even if it's safe enough, um, depending on the functioning of some clinics you can't Mm -hmm. swap clients per se but like you could make your proximity closer so they're kind of like joined in a conversation and everybody has eyes on their clients to ensure like safety overall right right like you're kind of buddied up helping each other like tag teaming Mm -hmm. that is always really useful which also leads me to my third point that everyone who comes into contact, kind of, mm-hmm. or who will be directly working with your client should have proper training and review of the behavior plan in place. And this should be every behavior plan of every client. Mm-hmm. So I used to work in like a group setting. Mm-hmm. I would have, I don't know. 10 to 15 RBTs under me 
equivalent of clients or more. Uh, most of your RBTs like rotate through your other clients. Okay. So every RBT would have two of my clients. That means that you need to know at least two of those clients behavior plans. But oftentimes you're going to do meetings, which would be like your direct staff Mm -hmm. meetings on a smaller scale. That's an appropriate time to train all of your RBTs because a lot of them will swap or fill in, especially if someone's absent for the day. Yeah. On the behavior plan. Um, or you could do this one-on-one. So usually mm-hmm. I would do it like small scale, cover every, cover all the bases for everybody. Mm-hmm. And then when I'm <clears throat> providing one-on-one supervision with the client, we can review in depth even more if something mm-hmm. like wasn't brought up initially. But Every therapist working with this client needs to read it and review it and have a chance to ask clarifying questions about the content. Mm -hmm. So everyone involved knows what's happening. I've also had some clients who have used more of a shared space. And even Mm -hmm. though some of those RBTs who were working in that shared space weren't necessarily my, um, my staff mm-hmm. they would need to know just because they would be in proximity of my clients in case like xyz happens this is mm-hmm. the plan sure you need to know and determine who needs to know that stuff yes so you might have to like skip over to another bcba staff meeting and train them mm-hmm. um and as a side note of this If you're a BCBA who writes a behavior plan and you refuse to implement your own behavior plan or help your RBTs implement the behavior plan you wrote, we're not friends. That's so wrong. You should be able to do... And that's in the nicest way I can say it because I'm not not saying that we're not friends. I would not work with you. (laughs) And you you should should not be writing a plan that you will not implement. No, no, you should be able to do every single thing in there. You should be able to show your staff how to do it. And you should be confident. Like if you won't do it, then why would your staff? You would be shook to find the amount of BCBAs that I've worked with who refuse to do their own behavior plan. Oh, I would not be because I have seen some things that people have written in community plans. And I'm like, absolutely not. (laughs) Yeah. I also like what you said about training. I think that this is obviously going to look different depending on the setting that you work in. And sometimes we have to be a little bit creative. Like in the community setting, you know, we're not like, I'm assuming clinics have more like set hours, right? So more Mm -hmm. of like a typical nine to five type situation. Community doesn't have that. You're going to have people working weekends, working midnights, working holidays. And sometimes it's hard to get all those people together to do a training But that does not mean they do not all need to be trained. I have seen so many behavior analysts and plans who work in a community where their training is, well, they read it and nobody said anything. Okay, but you also haven't been to the house in six weeks. Right. (laughs) Um, Because I know for my company has policies in place to make sure that trainings happen. But also just my own personal take, I try to be in the houses on a regular basis. So staff know when to expect me. 
if there's staff meetings, they let me know because usually like the midnight staff or weekend staff that I don't usually see are there. And I make myself available to explain, to demonstrate, to model, to answer questions and to provide additional trainings like, hey, heads up, we updated this section Mm -hmm. and just go through it. Right. So it's going to be different depending on your niche area, but you're going to have to be creative because just reading a behavior plan. I mean, we know if just reading influenced our behavior and knowledge. More people would read. Right. Like I'd be so good at so many things right now. (laughs) I would be so smart. (laughs) Every time I would do a training on a behavior plan, Mm -hmm. I make sure that staff member signs it and then I sign it and date it. Yeah. Also because like Danny said, you can't just put a behavior plan in and never expect to revise it. Right. Like you need to keep going back and revising it and making sure stuff is still relevant. Mm -hmm. Maybe you don't need the behavior plan anymore. Maybe you've completely transitioned to that alternative behavior you've been training. Or maybe this is just irrelevant. Or maybe, yeah, your your intervention isn't, you can do it, but your staff can't do it for whatever Mm -hmm. reason. Or you've tried it, your staff tried it, and the intervention isn't effective. So we need to try something different. Like that's such a big part of what behavior analysis is, trying different alternatives. You should always be evaluating and kind of updating your behavior plan as needed. Not like, I'm sure insurance requires every six months or a year or something, but um, we have similar requirements from the state sometimes, but it's like, it really should be as frequently as needed. Sometimes you got a good thing going, don't mess with it, you know, and you get the same plan for like a long time. Sometimes it needs to be updated pretty frequently because stuff's just not working well. And with that, the people who are with the clients the most really are the direct support staff, RBTs, behavior therapists. So if they come in with a genuine suggestion to change part of the plan, mm-hmm. I'm going to hang out. I'm going to watch that suggestion. I'm going to let yeah. you do it. I Let's want the feedback it. on it and we can change the plan. Yes. So if you have a legit concern about the plan after it's been modeled after you've learned it signed all Mm -hmm. the stuff like you're Mm -hmm. trying it and it's just not effective that doesn't do anybody any favors but you should let the bcba know so it doesn't look like you're just going rogue and doing your own plan because then it's like you know an issue yeah try the plan first (laughs) but let us know But that goes back to like, we have to have a good working relationship with our staff, whether that be like direct support, whether that be RBTs, whether that be behavior therapists, whatever we have to be, we as behavior analysts have to be able to take feedback from them. Cause like you said, like we should be able to do every part of our plan, but they are the ones who are going to be doing it more often. So if something's legitimately not working and you have found like a loophole or something that works better, please let me know. Any, like, good behavior analyst should listen and, like, take that feedback positively. Absolutely. If they're not, I don't know, ask for a different supervisor. That's a red flag. (laughs) Red flag. (laughs) So circle back around, though. Danny brought up that oftentimes you just see the general practice coping skills. Mm -hmm. Probably as a de-escalation technique. Which, first off, we already know, 
you cannot practice a coping skill that is novel if you're escalated. That's just not how your brain works. Right. So that would need to be a skill you've practiced when you're calm. Yes. But the general term of just coping skills doesn't work for everybody. I mean, Mm -hmm. I have had numerous clients who are like, you want me to take deep breaths? I'll show Mm -hmm. you deep breaths and get like legit heated at the the idea of taking a deep breath. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's just like they feel ridiculous. Maybe they became averse to it because somebody else was trying to like shove it down their throat. Mm -hmm. Cool, dude. You don't want to do deep breaths? All right. I'm going to sit over here and like color. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Let's find some. You're right. I mean, for a lot of people, there's a lot of traumatic learning history surrounding some of these things that are supposed to be therapeutic. But if I was forced to go to therapy for 40 hours a week when I was 10 years old and all my therapist told me to do is take deep breaths, I wouldn't want to do that anymore either. Right. I would probably be engaging in SIB at that point. Something. Physical (laughs) aggression. (laughs) Mine would honestly probably be verbal aggression first, if we're being honest. Your behavior chain would start with verbal and then go from there. (laughs) Uh, We know me so well. Right. But seriously, I mean, coping skills, just those words by themselves don't mean anything. Um, I like how you were talking about you uh, include like little get to know me sheets. I do something really similar. I um, include like a little cheat sheet, try to keep it to one to two pages as like a quick reference. And part of what's in there is like, you know, I have some clients that really enjoy card games. That's a great co-regulating thing. I have some clients Mm -hmm. who can't participate in card games, but they like sorting the cards. You know, I have some clients who really do like mindfulness and deep breathing. Great. Do that with them. I have some others who would yell at you Mm -hmm. if you suggested they be mindful. (laughs) So it's, you know, finding a set of activities, tasks, skills, whatever you want to call them that works for that person and then teaching them how to do it while they're calm so that whenever they're, you know, feeling, looking a little antsy, they're not going to look at you like you're crazy when you suggest. You Mm want to sit down and play some Uno for a minute? Right. And practicing those coping skills that they prefer to use can Mm -hmm. be a repertoire or like not a repertoire, but a rapport building technique yeah absolutely and then I mean to practice your coping skills sometimes it does look ridiculous like Mm -hmm. I get it nobody wants to be like all right let's take 10 deep breaths and like announce while you're counting your deep breaths and then like have someone you know over there like okay now exhale for count of four right (sighs) like okay if I'm doing that in the supermarket you can guarantee I'm going to be like self-conscious about it. Mm-hmm. And so is your client, especially mm-hmm. if you're making it a big deal. Yeah. If so- but if I saw somebody in the superstore supermarket doing that, I'd be like, oh, get your coping skills. OK, like you do you like whatever you need, because trust me, I feel like the grocery store and stuff is very overwhelming. Definitely. <laughs> I'd be well- like, I get it. <laughs> I feel like we could do a whole episode on coping skills and maybe we will one day because I feel like coping skills also need to be like context specific 
You know, like if I know my client gets overwhelmed in public places, yeah, I'm going to teach them to do something different than when they're at home in their bedroom mm-hmm. in, in private, you know? I always have this issue that a lot of clients get stuck on specific coping skills that aren't generalizable. Mm-hmm to a lot of environments and it's just not appropriate I like to call the the primary coping skill that I'm trying to teach for most clients is something I refer to as a mobile coping skill okay so something that you don't have to be stuck and be stationary for so like earlier I said like oh I'll just sit over here in color okay well Mm -hmm. if I have road rage and I like really need something to help me out I cannot color and drive at the same time those are just like incompatible behaviors (laughs) right so in that sense I need a mobile coping skill Mm -hmm. like I can't do that while I'm driving I need to have a coping skill that myself is entirely self-contained and Mm -hmm. I can do this coping skill wherever I am maybe Mm -hmm. I'm skipping maybe I'm like you know counting Mm-hmm. deep breaths would be great but as we said some people really hate deep breaths like they do um maybe you start stretching or something mm-hmm. maybe you're doing progressive muscle relaxation you don't mm-hmm. have to have anything for that except for your body right I mean, those those are great skills that i try to be more aware of versus mm-hmm. versus like oh without your coloring book and your crayon box and now we're toting around like a whole luggage thing worth of stuff for you to cope with like Mm -hmm. that's not great and that's not realistic Mm -hmm. especially as your kid clients age and especially the asd community Mm -hmm. i feel like we kind of get stuck on like here's some sensory stuff and here's like this other stuff and blah 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 like okay this kid with ASD turns into an adult with ASD and mm-hmm. you might have a basket of sensory toys and items that they like to fidget with now but what are they going to do when they're adults and they're working exactly. someplace like I can't be like let me pull my Mary Poppins bag out to like rifle through this thing because I want to feel this like one item and that immediately calms me down like no that's just unrealistic no, but that that is reality because then those kids grow up and move into group homes and then they're carrying backpacks full of stuff to work into community day services every day. And it becomes a whole different kind of issue. We see that exact thing all the time. Right. And you're like, what do you need a whole backpack for? Or when you like, maybe you're working in a workshop and now your backpack is a safety hazard. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, so what am I going to do when I take this entire backpack that houses all of your coping skills away? Yeah. No. Yeah. So how I, are you going to cope? Yeah. <laughs> I'm a real, uh, real advocate for the mobile coping skills because I love a mobile coping skill. And just to circle this back to behavior plans, since that is like supposed to be our topic for the day. Um, this is all stuff that Mariah and I have learned through our own research. Like, that is what our job is, is to learn these things. And then it is our responsibility to teach our staff. I don't expect my staff to know what a mobile coping skill is. Oh, right. Especially because I made that up. 
Right. But I don't expect them to think through that whole thought process we just talked out. I don't expect my staff to do that. That's my job. So then it's also our job to include this type of information in a behavior plan and in our trainings to teach our staff how to yes. teach coping skills or which essentially coping skills to teach. a behavior intervention plan is like a safeguard from having BCBAs gatekeep all of our info. Yeah, we We're should not be trying to gatekeep. Right. We shouldn't be trying to gatekeep what we know that's helping people. Yeah. We're supposed to be disseminating. Right. That's our whole shtick. But in an effort to not gatekeep, make sure your BIPs are actually effective. Mm-hmm. Make sure they're because effective. If they were make all sure super effective and functional, you wouldn't even need to have this episode. <laughs> right. Make sure they're effective. Make sure they make sense to the audience that's reading reading them. And focus on things besides just the unsafe or dangerous behaviors that you're trying to reduce. The Is end. Is that it? Great. Let's head in to bits and bobs. Yes, let's do that. Danny, what are you going to share with us today? My bits and bobs recommendation is something I just discovered recently. It's probably been around forever and I just didn't know. Um, but flat back earrings in the like show description i'm gonna include a link to like a pair that i bought off amazon but basically they're just regular earrings but the flat the backs are flat and they screw on which means they don't poke you like in the back of the head so i have like five piercings in my ear uh, in, in both ears yeah like all together and I like wearing earrings, but I'm not always good at remembering to put them in every morning. So, but with the flat back earrings, you can sleep in them and they don't hurt. You should still take them out on a regular basis to clean them, but you can wear them for several days in a row. Um, right now I have over the ear headphones on with all five earrings in. I can't do that with regular ones because the backs are like too long. They're too big, but with flat back ones, you can. So that's my recommendation. Watch out, world. Danny's got flat back earrings on. I got earrings in every day now. You're so great. It's kind of funny because now it's there's like two other piercings that I've been wanting to get in my ears. And now it's making me want to get them because I'm like, I could put a flat back earring in there and it's like semi-permanent. You don't have to take it out every day. You definitely should. Also, you should, you should still take this- them out to clean, but... You should put some of those earrings on your Christmas list. I got to look for some because I just I bought some cheap ones on Amazon to see if I even liked the concept. But now that I know I do, I'm going to go look for some like nicer ones. Mm. You know, I'll let other people buy me more expensive stuff so I don't have to buy it myself. <laughs> Listen, isn't that what Christmas and is all about? <laughs> And that's girl math. That's Christmas girl math. (laughs) Um, What about you, Mariah? My recommendation is going to be an app. It -hmm. also has a web interfacing. Mm -hmm. And it's called Notion. Okay, I know Notion. I've heard of that. I used to use Trello, which Mm -hmm. was kind of like Dex. Um... It's like a list app. Mm-hmm. But recently I upgraded my 
iPhone Mm -hmm. for finally. Well, so did you, Danny. (laughs) Yeah, because it was dying quickly. Right. We (laughs) were holding on for dear life. We were basically Jack. It was about to stop behaving. (laughs) And so we updated our phones. And you know, I've been having the time of my life. And Mm -hmm. this is a struggle. I could not get all my photos to back up. I like forewent a ton of stuff backing up on iCloud, yada, yada. I lost like all my notes. Turns out yesterday I tried to like look at my notes. I was like, oh, no, I have that in my notes. Your girl did not have those in her notes. So I basically just erased all the notes. Oh, no. uh, Well, I wanted those. And now I can't retrieve them out in the universe. So I've been very cautiously and consciously tracking a lot more stuff in Notion lately, Mm -hmm. which is great because my partner and I have a shared Notion list. And then within that, we have our own sub lists if we want to track something independently. Mm -hmm. But our shared lists include groceries because who doesn't need an ongoing grocery list? Same. Yes. With their partner. Mm-hmm. We have a QFD list, which it's it's kind of like a QFR or a, a QBR, which is a quarterly business review. But instead. Okay. See, list- I did not know what those letters meant. <laughs> <laughs> I switched our acronym. So it stands for quarterly family due. These are financial things we quarterly need to do as a family. (laughs) Fair. Okay. Boring stuff. Uh, We have a tab for recipes, goals, things we want to watch, a local coffee bean roastery, and the blends we've tried there. This Mm -hmm. is where we also do the primary part of our travel planning. So this is where okay. we make our itineraries. And then once they're gone, we kind of just like archive the list. Yeah. We also have date night ideas, stuff for my partner likes to smoke meats. So he has <laughs> a a meat stuff list. I don't, I nice. don't know that one. It sounds gross. <laughs> um, so we also have like health and fitness. But on my own subsection... I have just like my general to-do list. I also have BCBA things I want to research because Mm -hmm. if you're a BCBA and you don't have a current list of ongoing things you want to research, who are you? (laughs) I have things for my businesses, uh, yearly goals, fitness related items, my bucket list, and This is great because it's not attached to your phone. It automatically saves and I never have to back it up. That is really nice. So that is the benefit of Notion. And you can share it. So Thanksgiving's coming up. And in the years past, we've kind of made like a grid layout. Mm -hmm. And then everybody in the family can just type in next to their name and say like what dish they're bringing. And then it audit, like you can set up a grid however you want. You can make it very Mm Excel-esque, but it gives you like a quick head count, like, oh, okay, 20 people are coming, but look at all these dishes we have. And then, you know, 
Uh, so you can lay it out however you want. It's pretty versatile, but I love that it's not on my phone. And since like it's not tied to Apple, you can coordinate with people who have Android phones or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, unlike the Apple Notes app. So that's pre- that is nice. It is pretty nice. And so now anything I've basically put in notes, I'm like switching to be more aware and put it in my Notion app. That's a good one. I like that. But with that, what's our next episode going to be about, Danny? The next one is going to be about sleep. Maybe a little research. Maybe a little how do we get sleep. Why we need it. Why we need sleep. But Danny, That'll be coming out in two is weeks. sleep even a behavior? <laughs> you know what? Cliffhanger. Dun dun. Find out next time. Thanks for listening today. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Behavior Pod, on Facebook at Behind Behavior. Or if you're old school, send us an email at contactbehindbehavior at gmail.com. Smell you later. Bye.